If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome back. Well, yes, Canada's debt for the first time now over $1 trillion after a couple of uh, record-smashing deficits, $354 billion coming out of the pandemic year and expected $155 billion uh, for the coming fiscal year. So the federal government uh, envisioning a lot of money being spent on a lot of different things. They are going to, in the shorter term, expand uh, some of the pandemic uh, relief and support programs the federal wage and rent subsidies, aid for laid-off workers, uh, instead of expiring in June, those will be extended until September. Beyond that, though, uh, the government has some big aspirations, notably um, big investments in uh, child care, even the idea that five years from now there could be a $10 a day child care right across the country. I mean, obviously the provinces are going to have a lot to say about that, uh, but that's where the government envisions uh, a lot of the spending going forward. Now, there's some optimistic uh, forecasts around economic growth here. and Clearly, that all depends in large part on the trajectory of this pandemic and how well our vaccine rollout goes and uh, how successfully those vaccines can hold up against uh, some of these emerging variants. So there's a lot here to unpack. Joining us uh, for some uh, analysis of um, this budget, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Ken Coates, Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, also Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shayama Graduate School, Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan. <laughs> Professor Coates, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you as always. Well, and I think a lot of this was, was kind of telegraphed. In fact, actually, some of this seemed to be leaked to the Globe and Mail this morning. But any, any big surprises to you, first of all, in this budget? Well, the surprise is that the country is taking this so quietly. That, in fact, we got yes. so inured to the idea of deficits beyond our wildest imagination that a government right. could come up with this budget without everybody falling over in a dead faint. So what surprises me is the Canadians have become complacent and tolerant of massive government spending, making major new transformative investments without very much thought, very much planning, uh, without certainly not a lot of consultation and consideration of the long-term implications. So essentially it's like a, a teenager who's gotten a hold of four of their, their, their parents' credit cards and, and they're all unlimited spending. They can just go and buy what they want. And it it feels awkward. Yeah. It feels scary. And and the fact that we do not have a sort of a concerted systematic plan, uh, we're just sort of jumping into the darkness. And I that that's that's the surprise. The surprise is that Canadians have become so used to this that we're not even excited about it anymore. Well, and I, I guess we'll see how how Canadians react, and you know it's possible we'll be going to the polls at some point this year. But yeah, you're, I mean you're right. We went from, you know, talking about uh, whether twenty billion dollar deficits were reasonable to now this idea that wow, one hundred fifty billion dollars. Well, that's that's a big improvement over three hundred fifty billion dollars. These these numbers have almost kind of lost meaning in a way. And and I, look, I get that you know we we're dealing with a pandemic, and you know we we needed an emergency response. But I think what you alluded to is. A lot of this spending now going forward isn't really related to pandemic response anymore, is it? It, it really isn't. And, you know, we can, can't criticize too much the idea of still managing the pandemic and making sure we do that as best we can. Um, and that part is really, you know, you know we, we ought to be careful and make sure that the small business in particular gets more attention than it's received in this budget, but also more political attention than it gets. Um, the resource sector needs to be protected. There's a whole bunch of things we have to do. We have to make sure that we, we use our, our, our federal taxing and, and sharing uh, policies to sort of help the people who need it the most. Um, I don't personally find it very compelling when we sort of sneak in other enterprises, you know, issues that like national child care. You can have a great debate about this. Um, you know, some people think it's a great idea. Some people don't think it's a great idea. But sneaking it in in a pandemic budget has nothing to do with a pandemic. 
Um, if you want to address the fact that women in some areas, some in some sectors, particularly younger women, have been felt been dislocated by the pandemic, then set up a program for them for the next couple of years and give us give us a couple of years to figure out where this is all going. Uh, we don't know if the economy is going to rebound. We don't know if we're going to have a robust recur, uh, return to government revenue in two years' time, in three years' time, in four years' time. I'm just a bit more cautious, and I think we should wait until we see what the trajectory is before we start getting involved. And one of the biggest expansions in social programs we've had in this country, um, uh, probably in a generation or two. And and so, you know, that idea that this is a, too, a crisis that's too good to go by, I, I find really problematic. Um, so um, we'll, we'll see how it unfolds. Uh, but I'm, I'm very nervous. Yeah, well, and I think for good reason. It, it is odd, too, because... You know, I mean, if if the federal government wants that kind of a child care program to exist, then, then they can obviously be a driving force. But it seems like, you know, we're bumping into a whole lot of provincial jurisdiction on this issue. Do you, do you see some, some potential obstacles there, even if the government is, is serious about following through? Well, and, and there's always obstacles. I mean, one of the things we've discovered during the pandemic um, is that fed- federalism is a difficult process, a difficult structure. Um, even watching the differential responses, I'm actually calling in from the Yukon today, where the response to the pandemic has been extraordinarily good. And we're actually sitting now with uh, I mean, 70% of people have had at least one vaccination, over 40% have had fully vaccinated. You know, so, so we're doing really well here. But compare that to Ontario, compare that to, to British Columbia. You know, and we're discovering that federalism is messy. Um, and now in the middle of this time where we're still working through those challenges, we've got massive issues about refunding and refinancing the healthcare system. Now we're going to jump in into social policies where, quite frankly, our provincial colleagues don't have the time to work on this right now. This is not something that was front of mind for them. You did not see the government of Saskatchewan or New Brunswick sitting there banging on the door and demanding a, a, a national child care program. Um, and they're going to look there and say, you know, of all the things we got on the table, why are you putting more on our, on our to-do list? And these are big-ticket items. Um, I don't, again, speak for any of the provincial governments in the country, but I'm not sure if if a national child care program sort of in the top ten uh, on any of the lists, and certainly not in Quebec because they've already got one. So they're, they're not rushing for this. They're going to look and say, okay, well, the federal government's going to pay for something we're already doing. And that's good for us. They'll give them more money to do other things. And, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's in the middle of all of this, we should be paying our ten- attention to other things uh, rather than these new enterprises. Um, and you know, But maybe the liberals read the country differently and think that, that, that Canadians want to be sort of, uh, you know, bribed with public money, to put it in blunt terms. Um, but I find that part problematic given the, the nature of the challenges. We're not out of the pandemic yet. And I would much rather see us focusing 100% of our energies on that and the economic consequences and social consequences and then getting down to these other things and saying, okay, we've learned our lesson. Now how do we make a better country? That's a, that's a stage two enterprise, not a stage one enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an important point. You know, there, there's there's a lot of talk in this budget about stimulus, and it, it seems as though any federal spending can can somehow count as stimulus. I mean, I think there's certainly some some pent up economic demand that that's there once we get out of this pandemic. I mean, there's certainly going to be uh, economic growth once we get to that point. But in terms of really setting the the economy up for success in, in the long run, do, do you see much here along those lines? Well, it's interesting. You know, my colleagues who work with me in the field of sort of innovation studies will tell you that you, you should be spending your budget with a good portion of your time, probably equal 50% of your time on how to build wealth, and then 50% of your time on how to spend it, right? And so this budget is sort of 90% how to spend it and 10% how to build it. And we have very traditional approaches to how we build it. So we're going to have more infrastructure. Quite frankly, our infrastructure uh, system is pretty much fully fully occupied right now. Construction is racing ahead. You put in more stimulus into those sectors, you're just going to increase the cost of building houses, the cost of building buildings, the cost of building roads. It's not as though there's a huge demand there. So then the question is, are we investing in the right infrastructure that will develop long-term success? And, and what kind of infrastructure is that? Well, that's internet capabilities. There's a billion dollars more for rural internet. Um, they're dealing with issues of rural pro- poverty, and that's uh, First Nations in particular have been signaled out for more money in, in that area. That's not a simple sort of a easy easy issue to solve. Those are actually very complex. Um, so we're, we're seeing some good, you know, some of those things are okay. Um, but we've got a real problem in Canada where our innovation economy is not keeping up with the rest of the world. 
Um, and I don't see enough of the conversation there going in that direction at all. And, and, and that's not about just giving more money to universities. That's a simple sort of notion that doesn't actually work all that well. But, you know, what are we actually doing to help small companies become big companies? So, you know, small, successful firms to build into, into you know, Blackberries and Open Texts and, and Nortels and Shopify's yeah. and all that kind of stuff. That's the problem we have in Canada. And, and I just don't think governments generally know how to do that. Not because it's simple, but because it's hard. Um, and I don't see this, this, this particular budget spending much time thinking about that at all. So is this a budget that's going to stimulate private sector investment? Not really. Is there enough of an emphasis on the natural resource economy and infrastructure development generally to sort of ease the process of getting regulatory approval and get projects into operation? Not really. Um, if you want to build the economy right now, those are the most important things you can do. And we're, we're not moving in that direction fast enough. We're, we're still following sort of very traditional ways in which we, we, we sort of spend a lot of money and raise a little. And there's a, as a, a formula for the country as a whole, that's not very successful. Yeah, some great points. We'll leave you there. Professor Goats, appreciate you jumping on with us here, and uh, thanks for the great insight. Really appreciate this. You're more than welcome. Take care. All right. You as well. Uh, Professor Ken Coates, uh, Monk Senior Fellow of the McDonald Laurier Institute, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shiama Graduate School of Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan. Well, rare occurrences of these blood clots have occurred. Cases are rising, and this is the safe choice for everyone who's eligible. And we strongly recommend all Albertans get the first vaccine they can. All right, so that's uh, spokesman for Alberta Health, Tom McMillan, talking about the decision of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. Again, look, I, I think this is a wise decision. I'm not sure why they don't have somebody higher up out there explaining this today. But nonetheless, a step in the right direction. Clearly, we, we have a weird problem at the moment with this vaccine is that demand is not meeting supply. I think overall, we're still in a situation in Canada where we don't have the supply to meet all of the demand. But with the AstraZeneca vaccine, kind of weirdly, we do. In restricting the eligibility to 55 to 64, we've seen it here and elsewhere in the country that there's just not enough demand. Appointments are going unfilled and potentially even doses going to waste. And given the situation we're in at the moment, that's just not acceptable. So Ontario was the first and other dominoes have fallen, including Alberta, uh, to say, yes, look, if there are people in their 40s, early 50s who want this vaccine, they can now get it. We've lowered the eligibility on this vaccine to 40. Starting in Alberta tomorrow, uh, you can book those appointments. In fact, even today, they said that while we'll still prioritize those 55 and older, Uh, that those 40 to 55 will not be turned away from any of these uh, drop-in clinics. So joining us to talk a bit more about this decision, the impact it might have, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease physician and scientist based out of the Toronto General Hospital. Dr. Bogosh, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here. Hey, thanks for having me back on. All right, so your initial reaction to, as I say, what Ontario, Alberta, and now other provinces have uh, decided to do on this one? Home run. Smart move. Got to do it. Yep. Absolutely. Listen, we've got to treat a crisis like a crisis. You know, never before have we had this many cases of COVID-19 in the country. I'm, I'm sitting in downtown Toronto right now. Ontario's healthcare system is stretched beyond capacity. We've got adults being admitted to pediatric ICUs. We've got tents getting set up in front of several hospitals to care for patients. We're calling in healthcare providers from other provinces to come help us out. Like, if that's not an emergency, I don't know what is. And here you have a vaccine that will truly save your life. It will truly protect you and protect those around you. Yeah, can't ignore that there are rare, but real, but of course rare blood clotting events associated with it. But like, let's contextualize risk for a second. I mean, let's, let's get this vaccine out there. At least let people make an informed decision for themselves, right. right? Informed consent is a real thing. Talk about the benefits, talk about the risk, contextualize the risk, and enable people to make a decision for themselves. And look, I get that, that health officials and, and regulators are trying to be prudent. And we've had, though, the, the last few days, this odd standoff where Health Canada said, no, look, we've approved this vaccine. We don't think there should be age restrictions. So the province has seemed as though they're all waiting, though, for maybe some further guidance from, from NACI, the National uh, Advisory Council on, on Immunizations. And they were sort of taking their time with this. And for whatever reason, everyone seemed kind of frozen for, for the last week or so. What, what got us to this point? here do you think well i mean 
Health Canada is our regulatory body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they do a good job. They, they looked at the data. They said, yep, here's the risk of blood clotting events. Here's the benefit of the vaccine. We've looked at all the data. We've, and they look at the other stuff, too. It's not just the safety and efficacy. They look at the manufacturing data as well. Like, they really look at all. They said, yeah, this is okay, 18 plus. We will approve this for use in Canada 18 and up. Massey is an advisory council. It's not binding. They just make recommendations for the provinces. And usually the provinces align with NASI to some extent. And they usually have. But, and, you know, in all fairness, I think NASI will likely adjust their policy at some point to probably be more permissive. Um, but I think, on the other hand, too, it's an emergency. Let's treat it as such. We're not, we don't make, you know, you wouldn't, we're making peacetime suggestions in a time of war and it's a time of war like i think you've got a tool that's really going to help and really help get people through this crisis i'd I'd allow them to use it and enable them to use it and it completely aligns with health canada i think it's i think it's a very reasonable decision for alberta and ontario actually you know it's interesting this is all anecdotal but i think the interest is 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 huge i think astrazeneca is going to be flying off the shelves well, that's certainly my sense of what I've been uh, reading out here in Alberta. Uh, so I, I hope that's the case, that uh, it would be a shame to, to not maximize the resources we have because, you know, the, we're still in a situation where those resources are limited. So there's yeah. insufficient uh, demand for this, this particular vaccine. We've got to fix that because we've got the supply right now. In terms of this vaccine, and sure, there's been drama, there's been controversy, whether it be from regulators, the company itself. But, I mean, in the real world, the U.K. is a great example where... You know, exactly. th- this is a good vaccine, <laughs> but there's, you know, it does. But my goodness, there's been some, you know, perception problems. Oh, my God. I mean, like, so I don't know how to, I sometimes I categorize this as stupid things the company did that were preventable versus mm-hmm. stupid things that clinicians and public health providers did that were preventable versus non-preventable scientific things that we need to talk about. You know, the company, for starters, the company, first of all, their first clinical trial was a disaster, right? The dosing mix, mismatch, jamming together different data from different countries that use different doses and pretending that this was sound science, like, that was stupid and preventable and eroded trust. Then the company more recently did another clinical trial. It was fantastic. Great trial, well-designed. Uh, but then when they presented their data, they said 79% efficacy, and then the Data Safety Monitoring Board publicly called them out and said that data is too old. You have to use the updated data, and it was 74% efficacy, which is still fantastic. But, right. like, they, like, this is in the national and international media. Again, further preventable and erodes public trust. Then you've got, let's just talk to the Canadian context. You've got uh, NASI saying, don't give it to people over 65, then don't. Give it, then give it to people over 65, and then don't give it to people under the age of 55, right. now give it to people under the age of 40 plus. Like, you know, there's a lot of change, and, and there's a way to communicate change and a way to communicate evolving data that drives policy, that you can still build trust rather than further erode it. And I don't think we did that well. And then, so that's that. And then, uh, you know, I, I think we can certainly, there's room for improvement to communicate what the true benefit yeah. versus the minor risk is of this vaccine. It's interesting, too, because, you know, the UK has gone with um, a 12-week dose interval. And as it turns out, that might actually be better when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine. I know the questions come up. I've had the question asked several times that if we've got excess uh, supply of AstraZeneca, why don't we give people their second dose right now? And th- this is a tricky balance, isn't it? It absolutely is. I think it's really interesting. Like actually, 12 weeks of between doses is probably more effective than four weeks between doses. Probably is. It probably is. Um, but uh, but uh, and and we still have to balance this first dose fast approach by getting as many needles in as many arms as quickly as possible, similar to what the UK did to really help end this pandemic faster. And then, of course, you have people who are sort of clamoring and saying, well, I want my second dose faster. I mean, obviously, these are things that we can discuss. But like, if that's the policy, we're vaccinating at half the pace, and, and that's not acceptable. So I think it's reasonable for you know, people with compromised immune systems or people on the very older end of the spectrum to have their second dose uh, sooner. But I think for the, not everyone, but for the majority of people, that dose delay is just fine.
that it really is just fine. I listen. I'm walking proof. I'm on the COVID wards all the time. I get coughed on. Yeah. I've had one dose. You know, I haven't had two. I'm a healthcare provider, probably at the highest risk by virtue of my job. Uh, you know, I'm okay with it. Well, and and I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I'm someone who's who's four months uh, removed from a COVID infection, which fortunately wasn't all that serious. But mm-hmm. I'm one. I mean. Am I in a situation where maybe I'll just need one dose and that can free up another dose for somebody else? Am I, love I that. kind of at the back of the line here? I mean, so I'm I'm still trying to figure out what yeah, you know, no, where I fit. Really in. neat data actually for people that mm-hmm. have recovered from COVID that probably only require one dose instead of two, which would free up like thousands and thousands and thousands of doses. Yeah. Um, I've seen some jurisdictions do that globally. I don't know if we're going to do that here in Canada, but it, from a scientific standpoint, it makes sense. I think the other thing too is to remember that regardless of Whatever vaccine we get or don't get, and you know, at some point, probably at the tail end of 2021 or more likely early 2022, we're all getting a booster. We're all going to get a booster to account for the variants of concern and all this other jazz. And it's not going to matter what dose you got now. But, you know, we're all we're all going to need a booster at some point. And I don't know what the frequency is, but the next dose. Well, I mean, we still have to worry about everyone getting a first dose and then the second dose. But we're all probably going to get a third dose at some point in 2022. And then after that, I have no idea. I mean, who knows what the frequency of boosters is going to be. It might not be yearly, but I don't know. And meanwhile, this is all maybe a bit of a dress rehearsal for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which will be arriving in Canada later this month. I don't know if we've figured out the game plan for that one yet, have we? No, I mean, not publicly, but I know that there have been, I mean, I sit on the Ontario Vaccine Distribution Task Force and certainly we're talking about this, but of course we have to, you know, it would be very interesting to hear if NASI has some ideas. This is a great vaccine. Yeah. I know we've heard about six cases in the United States of a, a blood clotting syndrome. Uh, that's in about close to 7 million people that have received the vaccine. It, it's still probably an underestimate, but I think it's fair to say that those blood clots are going to be a very rare, but of course, real event. This is a one-shot deal. That vaccine doesn't require any fancy cold chain. It just can be stored in a refrigerator. I mean, this is incredible. This is the kind of one you want to drive around in a big ice cream truck and just yeah. give to people in factories and high-risk settings and shelters. And like, it's just there's so many good opportunities to bake equity into your vaccine program with this vaccine, especially with populations that might have challenges and barriers to coming back for a second dose. All right, we'll see what happens uh, over the coming weeks here. In the meantime, we'll leave it there. Dr. Bogosh, appreciate the insight. Uh, as always, thanks so much for joining us here. Have a great day. Nice to chat. You as well. Dr. Isaac Wilgosh uh, joining us uh, from Toronto, infectious disease specialist and scientist at uh, Toronto General Hospital, University of Toronto, and his thoughts on where we're at and how this uh, decision might help. I want to continue the, the vaccine conversation off the top here. And, and you know, clearly we, we missed the mark somewhere when it came to the AstraZeneca rollout. And we've had a week of having to watch, and it was some pretty depressing images. Uh, of these uh, big uh, vaccine clinics uh, essentially sitting empty. There just hasn't been the uptake uh, on the AstraZeneca vaccine that we would have liked. So if the 55 to 64 age group are, are not sold on this, I guess we'll see if uh, the Gen Xers, the 40 to 55 group, feel any differently. So we got the announcement from Alberta's premier last night, right off the heels of Ontario's uh, decision. Other provinces have followed suit, as we've been talking about, in lowering that that, uh, age eligibility. But on top of everything else we're dealing with in this country, like sometimes I feel there's a weird overlap between people who criticize the government for not getting vaccines sooner and people who say they, they don't want a vaccine. I mean, ultimately, folks, this is our way out of this. So I think part of it is demanding better from government, but I don't know. Do we need to demand better from ourselves? Well, it's a topic that's certainly of interest uh, to our next guest. I had a great piece uh, on Friday uh, and an excellent follow-up today, which you can read at The Line, theline.substack.com. Uh, joining us uh, on the line here this afternoon is Jen Gerson, writer, journalist, and co-founder of The Line. Jen, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So in between uh, the article you wrote late last week and the one that ran today, obviously uh, governments have made a decision to try to address some of these issues. What, what were your thoughts on that, first of all? Well, I mean, I was, I was very glad to see that the uh, age eligibility is coming down. Um, you know, the absolute worst possible outcome for everybody right now is, is the idea that we have you know, spent so much money, so much effort, so much time 
to to get a life-saving medicine, a miraculous life-saving medicine um, uh, available to as many as possible, and then to potentially see that that medicine uh, go to waste for expiry for lack of use. Um, you know, and I, I was pretty careful in my column to point out that the people who have concerns about this vaccine, I don't I don't cast them all as anti-vaxxers or or or, or bad anything of the sort. You know, considering the the terrible rollout, the terrible communication, the terrible media around this this vaccine, um, people's concerns about it are understandable. They're understandable, and and I do think that there has not been enough work done to really explain what the risks of this um, vaccine are, or or just how small those are, and why we're taking those risks. Um, I don't think that there's been good communication on this file. So I understand why people are feeling the way they feel, but I think somebody needed to point out that, um, look, this is what the risks are. They're not, not, they're not non-existent, but they're very, very low. And, you know, to be blunt, um, the reason why we're accepting the risks we are is because we're in a public health emergency and the vaccines are really our only way out of it. So, you know, if you're not, we have all given up 14 months of our lives. We've all made extraordinary psychological, financial, and emotional sacrifices. Um, and we've done it to, to do our best to preserve the most vulnerable among us. And, you know, I just don't think that you have a moral right to squander that sacrifice um, because you're uh, uh, irrationally afraid of a very, very, very low probability outcome. I mean, it's not what it comes down to. I think, as, as you alluded to, there, there's lots we can blame governments for. And, and you know, maybe we, we don't need to be in the situation we're in, and, and yet here we are. But, yeah, ultimately, even if uh, governments are on the ball, even if somehow we're getting capable vaccine rollout and administration from governments, ultimately it's all meaningless if, if people don't want these, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, I mean, the other thing is that I think there's a perception that there's somehow something wrong with the AstraZeneca vaccine where the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are better. There, you know, there's, there's some data to suggest that the, the odds of blood clots are about the same for all of them. And to be clear, the odds of blood clots are so low, they're so low, that we can't be totally 100% sure that we're just not attributing blood clots that would have happened anyway to the vaccine, right? Now, you know, there's, we don't know that for sure one way or the other. It's possible that we are. But, you know, you've got to put these things in perspective. For every one person who might die of a vaccine complication, we're probably saving another 20,000 or 10,000, you know? Like, the, the, the numbers are so skewed. They're so dramatically skewed in favor of the vaccine um, that there isn't any, any, any moral reason not to be taking them unless you have, of course, pre-existing conditions that would put you at a higher risk category. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to castigate everybody in the same brush here. If you've got family histories of blood clots or something like that, you know, like like listen to your doctor's advice, of course, of course. But um, you know, part of the reason why AstraZeneca was flagged specifically for the for the over fifty five crowd is because it it appears that the odds of blood clots were very low in the older co- cohort. The cohort that it seems to be at the highest risk of blood clots are women my age, women in their thirties. You know, we're overwhelmingly the highest risk, just as we're overwhelmingly the highest risk of blood clots for things like um, contraceptives and birth control. Um, you know, so there was a reason why they were trying to uh, uh, ensure the older population was using AstraZeneca. Breaking news now on Global News Radio, 770 CHQR. I'm Brendan Neufeld from Global News. The first federal budget in more than two years is extending Ottawa's COVID-19 lifeline for workers and struggling businesses for another few months as it tries to pull Canada through the pandemic. Finance Minister Chrystia Freeland's budget is also widely viewed as a pre-election platform with more than $100 million in new spending over the next three years amid record-smashing deficits. The federal government posted a $354 billion deficit for the pandemic year just over, and the budget projects a deficit for 2021-22 of nearly $155 billion. Stay tuned. We'll have more on the budget coming up in our next news at 2.30. Okay, so there we go. Uh, Some budget news there jumping in on us. We'll have much more of the federal budget uh, coming up in this hour. Let's uh, continue the conversation here with uh, Jen Gerson uh, at the line. And and, uh, Jen, and one of the points you've been making, and I think a lot of people have been making it, is... You know, where's the the informed consent in allowing people to make that choice? And and I wrote a piece as well for Global News over the weekend, sort of echoing that. Like, 
Look, the 55 to 64 crowd don't want it, and, and younger Canadians do. What, what's, what would be the reason for saying no? Even at this point, what's the reason for saying no to you, do you think? So, so for what, from what I can tell, if you look at the, the risk profile, okay, so the younger you get, the, the less likely you are to be um, affected by COVID, seriously negatively affected by COVID, sure. um, unless, of course, you have um, well-known pre-existing comorbidities like obesity, diabetes, asthma, pregnancy is looking to like to be a big, a big one. But if you're a young, healthy person and you don't have those specific comorbidities, your risk of winding up in a COVID, in an ICU as a result of COVID, is exceptionally low. So the, the older you get, the higher your risk gets. Right. So um, uh, the risk of me as a 36 year old woman winding up in an ICU is low, but the risk of a 25 year old woman winding up in in the ICU is 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 lower still. Right. So when they're looking at the cost risk reward trade offs, they're saying, what are the risks of a vaccine reaction versus what are the risks of the thing that we're trying to prevent? In this case, a bad reaction to covid. And if you're in sort of that 20 to 29 year old cohort, the vaccines are a hard trade. They're a hard argument to make because your risks of, from COVID are so low that, you know, it, it's about equal to your incredibly low risks of a bad vaccine reaction. So in that 20 to 29 cohort, that's where you start to get the risk reward ratios balancing out, right? But once mm-hmm. you get above basically age 29 to the 30 up plus, the older you get, the more the risk of COVID is overwhelmingly a higher problem for you than the the low risk of a of, of a vaccine reaction right um so yeah i for someone like in my age group we're in the informed consent territory like when i was on um, oral contraceptives you know i accepted a, a like i think it's about a one in ten thousand risk of a blood clot um and i did that you know every month i was in i took that i took those contraceptives you know, just to put that into perspective, the risk that this vaccine presents is is of orders of magnitude lower than that. Um, I think I've seen everywhere from one to two in a million. So, like, it's it's uh, and some some studies are saying could be as high as one in one hundred thousand, right? But we're still talking much, much, much lower than the odds of birth control, and it's it's not close. So, you know, if if a doctor's willing to accept that someone of my age group has the capacity to give informed consent to birth control, it doesn't make rational sense that I would not be allowed to give informed consent to the, to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Well, and I, I wonder if we'll figure all of this out sooner or later. And we got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that's going to be showing up here soon enough. And I don't know if we figured out what, what our plan is for that. Uh, I mean, look, ultimately, as you said earlier, th- this is how we get out of this. And, and maybe we have to accept some level of, of mediocrity in terms of government response, in terms of government communication. Uh, I don't know. I mean, does, does it leave you feeling optimistic that, that we're going to figure all of this out at some point? Where, where are the advertisements plastered everywhere showing kids reunited with their grandparents? Where yeah. are the advertisements showing us all back together having barbecue parties and partying again? Where are the advertisements incentivizing vaccine use? That's my question. I don't see it. One of the big failures I think the government has made is to say to people, well, great, you got your vaccine. That's nice. Keep social distancing. Nothing in your life changes. Keep wearing a mask. Because if there's no, if there's no incentive for getting that vaccine, then there's no reason to get it. And that, I think, has been a failure. I mean, I think what they're failing to communicate is that, hey, when we get a certain threshold of the population vaccinated, that's when things can go back to normal. But they're not communicating that. And because they're not giving us a carrot, there really is no reason for people in their minds. With And this is bad reasoning. It is bad reasoning, but it's motivated reasoning. If you don't give people carrot, there's really no reason to risk the stick. Right. And I, I think that one of the things that we've seen be very successful in the campaign, the, the vaccination campaigns down south of the border, is that, you know, we've seen advice from the CDC very quickly saying, like, look, if you're fully vaccinated, if you've had your two doses and the correct amount of time has passed, you can travel again. You can go see your grandparents, your grandkids again. Like, you can do these things because from what we know, these vaccines are very effective and they're very effective at, at, at preventing transmission, even among variants of concern. So, like, good. 
go about your lives, go back to normal, let's open the stores, let's let's do the normal thing here. But we're not seeing that in Canada. And instead, it's giving the people this extraordinary impression that there's no end in the sight. Nothing that we do is, is going to make any difference. Um, and, and that leads people to think that this is all just a power grab from government. And, 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 it, and it frays trust and it frays, it frays any reason to, to comply. And I think it's been a real error. It's a real error. And, and, I, and I think that the better message to be giving to people right now is an optimistic one. And that is, guys, like, actually, look at the numbers. We've turned the corner. Things. I know we're getting into, a, like, another case rate. We're getting into the third wave. We've got a couple of rough weeks ahead of us. Nobody's arguing that. But, like, our death rates are actually stable to declining because vaccination works. And we've been vaccinating the most vulnerable most vulnerable people now. So, like, there's every reason to be optimistic that we're actually near the end. We just need to pull together for another couple of weeks. And then things are going to get back to normal. We know that. But that's not the message we're getting. Instead, we're just getting doom and gloom, doom and gloom, doom and gloom. Do what you're told. Take your, take your shot. And nothing's going to change in your life. Your life is going to continue to suck. It's a terrible message. It's a terrible message. And I don't blame people for being upset. I don't blame people for being angry. And I don't blame people for basically giving up on compliance. And I don't even blame them for their vaccine hesitancy. But what's so tragic about it is that, the, the, you know, it's like we're all trapped in a cage and the key's being handed to us and we're not taking it. Right? It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's so sad. Yeah. It is. Yeah, well said. I like that analogy. Well, uh, your latest uh, on this and uh, much more, of course, uh, The Line. It's uh, on Substack, theline.substack.com. Jen, uh, always great chatting with you. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Cheers. Jen Gerson, uh, co-founder of The Line, which you can find on the Substack. Uh, some great commentary there, theline.substack.com. Okay. All right. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. We'll get some budget details coming up in our next hour. Later in this hour, infectious disease specialist Dr. Isaac Bogosh will get his thoughts on the AstraZeneca vaccine and the steps being taken by Ontario, Alberta now, other provinces to try to expand the eligibility. Because clearly uh, we've got a weird situation with the AstraZeneca vaccine, kind of the opposite of everything else, where we don't have the demand to meet the supply. And I think overall, it's still the opposite case in Canada on vaccinations. But, you know, we've had uh, appointments going unfilled over the last week. We've got these massive uh, roll-out clinics in, in uh, Calgary and Edmonton. These uh, rapid clinics uh, that are supposed to get people in and out really quickly. Unfortunately, nobody's showing up. To that 55 to 64 age group, just not enough of them and not enough demand for the doses we have. So certainly those should not be going to waste. We'll talk about that. Look, and obviously what's driving a lot of this conversation is is the urgency in addressing this third wave that much of the country is is stuck in right now, including Alberta. Uh, but certainly things seem particularly acute in Ontario. You look at the situation unfolding in Ontario hospitals, it's not a pretty picture. And politically now in Ontario, it just feels like uh, there's there's an additional crisis there. Now, a lot has happened over the last few days. And it started with late last week, uh, the Ontario government, Premier Doug Ford, announcing some pretty strict new restrictions to try to deal with this, this uh, escalating third wave. And that has not gone well. As our next guest wrote over the weekend, that uh, for those of us in Ontario, this weekend has been just completely insane. As he writes at uh, TVO.org. The government has been completely overtaken by events and lost control, not only of the crisis, but of itself. Matt Gurney, a columnist for the National Post and, uh, as mentioned, at TVO.org as well, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Matt, so good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. <laughs> nice to be here. I'm looking forward to try and uh, recap three days of just total bonkers craziness in a couple of minutes. But nice to be here. Yeah, well, we appreciate you joining us. And I mean, part of the, the interest, I think, outside of Ontario is that question of, is this where we're all headed, right? I mean, something has gone seriously sideways in Ontario. And I don't know if it's an Ontario problem where it's just Ontario got there first. But let's let's try to unpack what's happened here. The short version is, okay, things have gotten bad in Ontario. The government introduced some new restrictions last week. But there's a lot more to that story, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, look, it's almost impossible to tell you everything that's happened, but here is a reasonably concise version. Ontario had a pretty bad second wave uh, late last year, early this year, 
uh, worse than the first wave in terms of uh, number of people infected, number of deaths, number of hospitalizations. And when that finally eased, the government was like, all right, let's open it up. We know we've got vaccines coming and let's, it's time to start opening up again. They did this against public health advice. There was no doubt that we were rushing to reopen and our hospitals hadn't really recovered yet, but the government plowed on. And then a couple of months ago, the numbers began turning around before we had emptied out the hospitals. The cases started coming up again. And again, the government was warned and it said it wouldn't it wouldn't change course. It said, hey, look, if we see problems, we'll reapply local restrictions. Starting last month, the government did start reapplying local restrictions. Some areas like Toronto never really came out of the second wave lockdown. Other areas started to go back into lockdowns and it didn't work. So the next week, the government imposed more restrictions. And it didn't work. And the week after that, the government imposed more restrictions. And at every point in this process, there was growing signs of, of panic, uh, to be pl- blunt about this, in the government. Last week, a week ago today, I wrote a column, and it was for TVO.org, as you mentioned, where I mentioned that the government was changing its mind every couple of days. And I've even noted that it was down to the point where some of these decisions were being announced and then reversed within hours. And I thought things looked bad on Monday of last week, a week ago today. On Mm -hmm. Friday, Rob, you've alluded to this. Things went insane. And I know that doesn't sound very professional. I've been a broadcaster and a columnist for a long time. I can't think of any other way to describe what has been happening in Ontario these last three days. The government shut down all outdoor amenities, picnic benches, uh, picnic tables in parks, park benches, playgrounds, golf courses, all of them shut down immediately. Um, They gave every police officer in Ontario, and this was Friday afternoon, the power to stop anyone for any reason or no reason at all, get their home address, And if they couldn't justify why they were not at home, they could be ticketed or arrested. And what happened, Rob, over the next few hours is something I haven't really been able to wrap my mind around yet. It was so shocking. Dozens. It started with just a few, but over Mm -hmm. overnight and the next day, it became dozens. Dozens of police forces in Ontario refused the order publicly. They put out statements via social media or the chiefs would issue letters. They were also very polite about it. But dozens of police forces in Ontario said publicly that they would not be enacting the government orders. And around this time, there were reports coming out of uh, the Queen's Park reporters who cover the provincial government of absolute chaos within the ruling party, Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives. By Saturday afternoon, less than 24 hours after these new uh, orders were issued, they had been revoked. The government was pulling them back, saying, okay, we hear you, Ontario. We're not going to bother doing this. Sunday, we had staffing changes in the premier's office. We have reports of um, a possible cabinet shuffle coming up today. the, The House is sitting again, and the deputy premier was fielding all the questions. No one's seen Doug Ford since Friday, and no one, as far as I can tell, knows where he is. Wow. Yeah, and it was interesting, too. I mean, it, ironically, of all people, Patrick Brown, who was at the, the center of maybe the, the last big political explosion in Ontario some years ago, and uh, he's now the mayor of uh, Brampton, I believe it is, uh, saying, well, we're not going to let our playgrounds close. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to stand for this because, you know, people, yeah, and out here, I mean, you know, we, we still have outdoor dining, golf courses are open, and that side of it just seemed really insane to me. When you've managed to to completely anger both the, the anti-lockdown side of things and the people who actually think we need meaningful public health measures, when you've got those people just as angry, I think you've really screwed up. There was no one in Ontario defending this. And I actually asked uh, a friend of mine who is a partisan Ontario progressive conservative, I said to them, who should I be looking to right now, whether it's someone in the media, like a friendly pundit or a minister or anyone? Like, who is out there doing the heavy lifting, trying to defend the government on this? And I was told nothing. 
Like there was no one. There was no one who was defending this. And I was. And you've made the point. All of the people who would normally be opposed to each other on this issue were united in this. And like we've seen some acknowledgement of that today. The government has sort of acknowledged, okay, yeah, Ontario, we got it wrong. We're sorry. We made mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. But like for a couple of days now, Rob, I don't. I'm not saying this to be dramatic. I'm honestly not sure who is running the province right now. Ford has just vanished off the face of the earth. The deputy uh, premier was out in, in full view of the cameras today. There's talk, open talk, like I said, of a coming cabinet shuffle, maybe a proroguing of government. There's less open talk, but there are open whispering going on now about a possible caucus revolt against the premier. The wheels have completely flown off here in Ontario. And guess what? While this has been happening, while we've had this completely self-inflicted political crisis develop, ICU admissions in Ontario hit a new daily record tomorrow. Uh, today and tomorrow they're going to do it again and they're going to do it again every day for the next two weeks there we have a public health emergency in this province right now that's going to require all hands on deck and we have a government that has lost control not only of the emergency but of itself i have never in my life seen anything like what's unfolding in ontario right now it's interesting. You mentioned uh, what, what's going on in caucus, and it's it's been quiet above the surface. I mean, here in Alberta, we had some MLAs who very publicly signed a letter expressing their disagreement with the, the health measures that our premier had brought in. Are, are we likely to see something like that, do you think, Matt? Are, are there those in caucus who maybe are prepared to go public with their anger, with their frustration, and maybe even you know, loss of confidence in the premier? Well, you know what? That's actually a great question. Um, let me tell you what has happened. So there's a, a Toronto-area uh, MPP, member of provincial parliament, who had an open letter to her colleagues mysteriously and get leaked to the media. I don't know if she leaked it. I don't know if one of her rivals did. But basically, it was a pretty thorough takedown of her own government's policies. It didn't pull any punches. And you know what Canadian politicians are like. Like, you speak against the leader. You get blown out the airlock. There has yeah. been no consequences whatsoever. Doug Ford has already thrown two of his MPPs out of caucus previously for sort of going off the rails a bit. And this MPP now has a statement leaked that just eviscerates the government, and there's no response. It's so, I mean, you can read the tea leaves on that, right? Like, she cannot have been speaking just for herself with that statement. The NDP, which is the official opposition in Ontario, uh, the leader is explicitly appealing to Ford's caucus, bypassing the premier entirely. She's reaching out to the backbenchers and saying, work with us and we'll impose some order here. I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, but she's trying. Meanwhile, the liberals that are the third place party are demanding Ford resign immediately. I honestly don't know where any of this is going to go. Like, it's just so opaque and confusing right now. I wouldn't even hazard a guess. Obviously, the government is in crisis mode. Like I mentioned, they're doing staffing changes. There's talks of shutting down the legislature and all that stuff. These aren't things you do if things are going well. My gut yeah. feeling would probably be that Ford will try to get things under control this week. But I honestly don't know. I mean, it's too early to even begin trying to imagine the kind of damage to himself and his party the premier has done over the last three days. It's really interesting because, you know, a year ago, I, I felt like I was one of those people who was, you know, was never crazy about Doug Ford or the whole, you know, Ford political family slash legacy. But people started to see him in a different light. Like, you know, this guy has another side to him. He, he seemed to be, you know, demonstrating a lot of leadership as we were kind of at the outset of this. And here we are a year later, and I don't think anybody's, anybody's saying that about him right now. Now the conversation is whether he's, he's going to survive. So clearly his fortunes you know have, uh, have, have taken a turn for the worse here. Look, I've been watching Doug Ford since his brother was mayor of Toronto. And you'll obviously remember the chaos of the Rob Ford mayoralty. I had no illusions about Doug Ford. If you review my writing about him, I've always tried to be open-minded and try to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I've never really had high expectations. Um, but what we're seeing now is, what oh, this is my interpretation. And look, your listeners, Rob, should, should take this for what it's worth, right? This is me trying to do, give like an amateur psychiatric evaluation to the guy. 
I honestly think what has happened over the last month, and not just to him, but to others in the Ontario government, is that they honestly thought we would get through this, that the third wave would arrive two months later than it did, or we'd get a few more vaccines than we did. Because this is the frustrating thing. We're not missing by much. You know, if we had uh, had better airport controls and if we that's a federal problem, if we'd kept these variants out of Canada a little bit longer, probably Mm -hmm. by the time they arrive, we would have vaccinated three, six million more people. We're vaccinating about three million people a month. If we delay this thing two months, that's half the Ontario population, uh, adult population vaccinated on top of the three million we've already done. We basically would have been in the clear. I honestly believe, and it was crazy, but I really believe that that's what they thought would happen, that we would just barely squeak through. But in the last few weeks, as it's become obvious that that's not going to happen, we just didn't stick the landing. The timing is not working out for us. I think panic has set in, and there's no way to interpret what we've seen since Friday as anything other than completely uncoordinated panic at the executive leadership level. And... I don't know. Maybe someone reads them the riot act. Maybe they all need to go home and unplug their phones for a day and collect their thoughts. Maybe we get things organized again this week. But something has broken in the Ontario government starting last week. They are not in control of the situation. They're not even in control of themselves. We'll see what this week brings us. Uh, Matt Gurney, much more nationalpost.com. And as mentioned as well, tvo.org, an op-ed there from you as well. Appreciate it as always, Matt. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks, Rob. All right, cheers. There you go. That is uh, Matt Gurney, columnist uh, for the National Post, nationalpost.com, on uh, what's been quite a, uh, quite a few days in Ontario. And yeah, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, Ontario's problem is, isn't that much different than, say, Alberta's or BC's at the moment. It's interesting, too. I mean, if you, if you take Alberta's daily case count and you adjust it for population, it, we're, we're actually slightly worse here than Ontario. Uh, but clearly, the, the hospitalization situation there, for whatever reason, is uh, is a lot more dire. And I mean, at the peak of the second wave here in Alberta, I mean, you know, we had over 900 people in hospital. But um, like I say, things have been going in the wrong direction here in Alberta. Let's hope it doesn't get to that point. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.